and welcome to the very 66th episode ever of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, the podcast that's all about board games and the humans who love them. I'm Matt Lees. I'm joined as ever by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matt Lees. And over in the Canada land, it is... Hello, Matt Lees. I'm Paul Dean. Hello, Paul Dean. Uh, we've just been over in Canada land and uh, we, we went out for a, a big event called Shucks, which was the Shut Up and Sit Down uh, board game convention. We did indeed. And it was great. And we did live shows and panels. Unfortunately, though, I gave some very bad advice to the entire team before our first live podcast and made the audio entirely unusable. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 you need to be right next to these microphones. Turns out we didn't and we shouldn't have been. So now we're just going to talk a little bit about the convention and talk about some of the games that we talked about in that long forgotten podcast. You've got this sort of cool Bob Ross delivery right now, Matthew, as if what as if Shucks wasn't like the single most stressful event. Oh um, boy. Well, it wasn't that stressful for us, was it? Yeah, almost. It's fine. Well, L- looking back on it now, cried. we can well, well, it's fine. I mean, that's not from stress, that's happiness, right? Yes, uh, but the funny thing about Pip crying and then like joking after the final closing ceremony like, "Oh, I can't believe I cried on stage." is that uh, the only reason I threw over to her and said, Pip, how did this convention feel to you? was because I knew if I said it, I would cry. So I was like, "Uh, Pip can do this. And then she cried. So I feel like I pushed her under the tear bus. This was from the closing ceremony, which was was just about 50 minutes of us thanking people and then um, then, then moving towards tears. Whilst I occasionally played bass guitar, which was was a thing. Which went quite well. It was a strange... It did go quite well. I was surprised. Um, It turns out playing the bass guitar is actually easy. Um, yeah, it was, it was really something. And, uh, yeah, so we, we had a hell of a time and we kind of got trapped in a bit at the end where we just kept thanking everyone and everyone kept clapping. And oh, I think I just initiated some sort of escape mechanism because otherwise it was just, I felt like it would carry on forever. But yeah. It was beautiful and lovely. I mean, yes. it's, uh, we shouldn't talk about shucks partially because, you know, there's not a, a great deal you could say. You, you just had to be there. <laughs> also, we shouldn't talk about shucks because, frankly, the three of us were just walking around shaking hands and signing things for like 72 hours. And so when people are like, oh, did you play the new game from the designer of Two Rooms and a Boom? We just said no. We did manage to squeeze some stuff in, though. And that's what we we're did. talking about on this podcast. Some of the games that we played at our show. And there's actually some stuff at our show that we were really, really interested in. It was almost frustrating because we're like, what's this doing here? I don't well, have time so for this we, now. We had sort of supply, surprise arrival as well didn't we like things we just didn't know were coming that people turned up with and were like by the way yeah. you might like to know there's an expansion for Inish did you know that no we didn't know that it's here okay yeah, like oh we got a never played before expansion for Lords of Vegas yeah so lots of our favourite games just suddenly had expansions in front of us like Fever Dreams a really uh, delightful thing um, being meeting the designer of Lords of Vegas a game we always thought was funny and then finding out that he is just the most hilarious dude and uh, as I, i've never been taught because uh, he was there showing off the new expansion that's coming up for laws of vegas and we were playing it and uh, i've never had someone make fun of me so much while teaching a game <laughs> uh which was great uh, it was very much one of those things where, where yeah when we met him it was like oh yeah yeah this game came from from you like you can see it was obviously co-designed by somebody else but it was very much person which was a lovely thing of being like yeah i can i can see where this game came from it's in really interesting way. actually to see a, a person's personality or kind of sense of style reflected in a game like that i wonder if that happens with everybody you know i think whenever i've met a board game designer i can the board games they make make more sense um speaking of making of meeting designers of games though i think we should lead off with probably the biggest scoop from shucks uh, which you guys talked a little bit on a written article on the site uh the inish expansion that's yes. coming up yeah um, mm. matago were in in force at shucks they came over and said uh in a 
sort of <laughs> the very flat French delivery, like, you know, would you like to see this? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> and then they sort of coolly delivered all these astonishing Inish facts. Uh, oh, yeah. We got some, we teased that in the article on the site about our favorite things from the show. Oh, okay. Well, you can talk about the game as long as I can talk about the box cover. The box art was cool. Right? So yeah, if people go. might not be aware of this, but all of, or almost all of the art in Inish is the designer of, um, sorry, is the same artist behind the famous Che Guevara poster? Yes. Um, as in the one that adorned all teenagers' walls in like the early 90s. And probably still does. Yeah, if you Google image search Che Guevara, you will see this unbelievably iconic uh, poster. It's which, the face of capitalism. Or the face of, you know, capitalist resistance to communism. No, wait, I got this wrong. Anyway, um, so he's an incredibly important artist, but also he just really loves his own Irish heritage. So he draws all these Irish watercolors. Um, I don't know if they're watercolors actually, but certainly... Uh, Paintings, oil paintings. Maybe? So yeah, so they basically licensed a bunch of the paintings he'd already done. Yes, it oh, turns really? out that all of the art in Inish. Yeah. yeah, so not the actual tiles, but the cards in Inish. And if you aren't aware what Inish is, my goodness, it's one of our favorite games of the last mm. couple of years. Inish is spelled I-N-I-S, and uh, you can find Paul and my video review on the site. So do check that out if you haven't already. Um, but I digress. So it turns out all of the beautiful card art in Inish, Inish in this is um it's just stuff that the artist had already done and so they just commissioned with the exception of the stronghold artwork which is just a boring picture of a castle which he didn't have any pictures of castles so they yeah. got one of those in so now the interesting trivia here is the inish cover which is a beautiful beautiful cover um uh, they commissioned him for or they wanted to but his price was so expensive that there's no way they could have ever commissioned the inish cover but uh, a friend of Matigo, who I will quote describe as a rich friend, just said, I'll do this for you. Yeah, he was like, oh, you should get a box art done for it because this game's lovely because he was playing it and they're like, oh, we can't afford it. He's like, oh, it's fine. I'll just buy the art and then you can use it. It's like, fine. Yeah, he didn't <laughs> wow. tell us how much that fee was. But no. the funny thing as well is um, it's it's one of those uh, interesting cases of perceived value where, in, in Paul, in the instant that we found this out, Matt then looked at the Inish cover, which yep. was right next to us when we heard this, and he looked at the perfectly ordinary Inish cover and said, oh yeah, that's the... Wait, this isn't the same Inish cover I have at home. Yeah. Because once you knew how expensive it was, then you were capable of looking at the box and going, oh my God, this is a stunning piece of art. But before that, when you looked at it, you just saw the cover of a board game. Yeah, and thought, oh, it's a good cover, but like I wasn't really examining it. As soon as I started realizing, actually, this was a nice painting which was commissioned by a quite For famous artist. For like a five-figure or six-figure. Uh, yeah, that's, like, that's really wow. interesting. Hmm. Hmm. I'd never yeah, thought about that. Name. And now I want to immediately go back and Google the cover and look at that. And but, I mean, is it that much better than all the other art in the game? I feel that it's all on the level of like all the card art is pretty much extremely good, I feel. Everywhere. Yes. Except for the stronghold card, which now it's been pointed out. Is yeah, when to... you point out, it's like it does look a bit phoned in, actually. <laughs> when, you, when you look at it, you're like, yeah, never mind. Uh, so briefly, uh, should we run through what's coming in the Inish expansion? Yes. Yes. Yeah, tell so us. you get a fifth a fifth player, which is a, a, a big deal. And because of, mainly because of the fact that like it's very rare you get games that actually play really well with different player counts. And one of my favorite things about Inish is how well it does scale up and down. Mm. Like, yep. It Two. works. It's one of those great games where you play it with four and then you go, but what's this like with two? And you yeah. play it with two and you go, I have to try three. And then you want to play four again. Yeah, exactly. And two is just great as well. It just changes the game a lot, but it's still fantastic. But five, it's like the question of whether or not you can stretch to five. It's that dangerous number when it can start to get a bit wobbly. Yeah. Um, but it looks interesting. Obviously, you've got a fifth set of uh, little black plastic people. And uh, the cards are the exciting thing because yeah. the, the new cards which players draft to take actions and my goodness this is all going to sound Greek if you don't know anything about yeah. Finnish but um, the new cards that are introduced to the game so a fifth player can squeeze in 
um, are all cards that involve other players. So for example, it's a card where you can move, but when you move, you have to take another player with you. Yeah. <laughs> or you have the option of taking another player with you. It's an attack card, but you attack with someone else. Um, so they'll be the same. Yeah, I thought so. So even though there's five players, you've still got the same amount of involvement and discussion between yeah. all five people, which is clever. And also it seemed like they just generally wanted to stop people from turtling away in the corner of the world and actually be a bit more involved. <laughs> hey, we're going exploring together. Yeah, well, I so mean, I love the fact the that like... I mean, this immediately, and sorry to interrupt, but this makes me ask you, like, how much do you find yourselves cooperating when you play? Because my games are always really, really very competitive. And there's the only like communication we have is to point at someone and say, that person's winning, we have to stop them. There's, you know, there's very little cooperation. And I wonder if the idea of this is to just, you know, really seed that in and change the way things feel. I think there there could be an amount of that because with five players, if someone's in the lead, there's more opportunity for people to really form a cohesive team and be like, look, we're, we're losing here. Yeah. Let's stop attacking. I don't know if it's just me, but like one of the things I really like about Inish is the way that it frames it as being like not a war, but being like you are all part of one clan and you're vying for control of the clan. And for me, that's always kind of in my mind, especially because you're not always playing cards about battles. Sometimes you're throwing festivals or you're like sending emissaries. There's this sense of like, yeah, there are fights, but it's not necessarily all about fighting. So I find actually like there often will be two players who are locking horns for the win, but everyone else just sort of accepts that they're kind of kingmakers. So I, I found in the games I play, sometimes you find yourself in the race for the win, but sometimes you think, yeah, I'm not going to get this. But then it is about who do you want to throw your lot in with. And sometimes it's just a case of, I do look at it across the entire game of being like, who would be the best leader? Who's been the most honest or the most consistent or like, Who's the person who I think deserves to be in charge of all of us? And there's something about the tone of that that I really like. More board mm. games, uh, more war games specifically desperately need a mechanic, which I first encountered in a PC strategy game uh, that I wrote a lot about back in the day called Solium Infernum. Yeah. Where um, if you are not in the lead and you don't think you're going to win, you have the opportunity to pledge your services as a vassal to the player who you think is going to win. And if they choose you, you have the opportunity to come in second. So it's a, and but frankly, that was also a strategy game that took a week. So the idea of yeah. going second instead of fourth is massively important to you. But yeah, the idea that when players are out of the running, that doesn't have to be a problem with your game design, as long as you have the release valve of letting players who functionally lost then go, but what if I become your lapdog? Yeah, yeah. I was quite happy. I've had a lot of, quite a few games where it's ended with the last turn with me doing something which swings the game in the favor of one person or the other when it's a bit of a stalemate. Yeah. Just because I decide, that, actually, I think I want you to win. And, and I take that's still interesting that. know, to but... do, like as a player, that still makes you invested in what's happening. Yeah, yeah but the, the cool of the cool new stuff in it, which I like, is the obviously This is the Inish expansion? Yeah. So the Inish expansion, you've got the um you've got new tiles which are to do with um water, basically. So you have new locations that have ports on them. And this means you can't keep just exploring in one direction constantly because you hit eventually you'll probably hit water. And it means then the one edge of those three edges of the triangle land pieces that get procedurally put down as you explore will have water but the exciting thing is all locations next to water are considered connected uh, which again just means you can't just i've had a few games where sometimes somebody just goes off to one corner on their own and then everyone yeah. sort of leaves them alone and um, means that's not going to happen anymore and crucially something one of the few things about the original game that kind of perplexed me was the use of language that didn't quite make sense and one of the things was that each turn was called a season season card and there's a, actually a reason for that. And it's uh, game mechanics which were cut from the original game and have ended up coming back for the expansion. And it's the fact that um, seasons are actually now a thing. So you have it like you have the little raven thing that usually rotates around to show whose go it is. Mm -hmm. will actually now go around the seasons. And it means that um, 
Uh, the one I the, the one that I remember is that in summer, yep. any card can let you move. So yeah. one turn in four, everyone can just wander around the island and start fights. Exactly. So it means if you've got a card in your hand you can't use, then hey, it just means more fights. So we didn't really get a chance to play it enough to get a sense of it, to be honest, because we were just so busy at the convention. But it seems interesting, and I can't wait to sit down and play more of it. Like, yeah, I, I mean, am it's... definitely interested in this, and I'm interested in the fact that the the season card, these dr- cards that you draft, will now have, I guess, different values depending upon the time of year. They suddenly become way more significant at certain times of year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also the, um, uh, of course, the the special one shot godly powers cards, where if you get one of those, it lets you attack in a season where ordinarily you wouldn't be able to attack. It's 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 just great. It's precious. If you haven't yet explored Inish, I think it's uh, it's one of the greatest games we've encountered in the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, it's great to know that an expansion's coming. What a what a treat for us! Yeah, yeah I'm really excited. I mean, like the new stuff seems pretty cool. Um, but frankly, if they can just make it work with five, awesome. Because it's it's a game that I like so much that people request enough now that it's it's always a shame when somebody's like, "Can we play this?" And you're like, "No," because it only plays four, <laughs> and there's five people. So unless we murder somebody, oh. in, you know. And if the expansion works, it means Inish will be that rarest of things, which is a game that works from two all the way to five. Yeah, yeah. so it's a tough act to do, but if they can pull it off, who knows? Who knows? We we'll have to wait and see. Paul, do you want to call out something that you played at Shucks? Something that made you moist for that no that's not wow sometimes sometimes i try and put Um, together really playful gentle sort of like childlike words i I, I will i'll be a good boy no sometimes it doesn't i'll be a good boy and uh there'll be no fluid talk and rather than the the serious political machinations talking of fluids and uh and swearing though it was one of my one of my most entertaining things was pointed out at sharks that we've been trying to avoid swearing in videos for a very long time because we do appreciate that families watch our videos and have young children and that's fine but we hadn't noticed that in a huge number of videos we uh have a mug which is um uh, in my house which is just has swearing on it and is frequently in shot and apparently we've been doing this for years i I never noticed this no we didn't either so apologies for that (laughs) try not to have that that mug everywhere if it's any consolation it was a mug bought for me, by my mother. So, <laughs> blame, blame my mother for the obscenities that have been creeping their way into Blame your Matt's homes. mother for your kids being corrupted. Yes, exactly. It's a generational gap. Anyway, carry on well, with your fluids. Paul. Well, uh, thanks. I had a very good swear-free time. I played When I Dream, which is almost like the, the opposite to Inish. We talked about it a lot more on, was it Podcast 55? Uh, um, uh, l- my... my- assistant informs me that that's correct i would go back and listen to the description of that it is oh my goodness uh if it felt to actually play it it felt like a version of dixit where you can't see because you're trying to guess these words and it is funnier than i expected it to be because while one one team of players is trying to get you to correct the guess word correctly guess the right word the other team is trying to send you off but not too far yeah so it's target it's kind of blindfolded and you have to guess what everybody's collectively giving you clues but then you need to be both remembering the words that you're saying and also trying to identify which people around the table are potentially consistently like right i think you enjoyed it more than we did actually like i played it again actually at sharks and it's it was it was funny and it was fun and it was fine but there was i couldn't quite put my finger on it but there was something i felt kind of not quite there then it didn't click for me really yeah it 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 felt like a uh, a fun novelty for me. Like every time I've played it, I enjoyed it. And it was that, um, it, it didn't feel like it had legs for me, I suppose. Like 
there are many board games where I'll play them once and go, that was nice, and have no inclination to buy it. Um, it felt like one of those for me, so I am glad that you managed to have uh, to have a real killer time with it, Paul. Because the new edition has a real plastic bed, which it, you can put cards in. Yeah, it does. It has a can't sleep in I it. Mean, it's it, too in small. In a way, it doesn't need these things. It has a wonderful plastic bed. It has great card art, which is sort of ironic because you can't see that if you're the player who's dreaming and you have a blindfold on. Uh, but as a concept, I think it's a really good concept for a sort of a party game that doesn't have to be really lively. And the fact that the the more you play, the more everybody uh, reshuffles cards and you have new roles again. So there's you end up with this dynamic whereby you're too used to not listening to Matt because Matt has, for two games running, Matt has been on the team that's been trying to put people off, except now because the roles are reassigned, you actually should be listening to Matt because he's changed teams. It worked for me. It worked for me as a light social party game that, you know, goes wrong in all the fun, amusing ways. That's fair. I found it way too close to novelty for me. It was just a, it was a lot of a lot of props and a lot of things, but none of sure. it really added. It was a it was a funny one, but it's a shame because I had fun with it. But I just I left I left feeling like slightly like there's something there's a few things if they would just change this could be really great, but you, I just didn't excite me. Um, you mentioned Dixit, Paul. I think it does remind me of Dixit in that um everyone thought <laughs> not that <laughs> this is going to sound like I'm slamming you, but everyone thought Dixit was great. Um, and then Mysterium came along and everyone was like, ah, yeah. that's where this mechanic should be. A lot be. of people don't like Mysterium though, but I think that's interesting. But yeah. yeah, a lot of people are not hot on it. Do you but... have their names and addresses? <laughs> I don't, I don't. Can I go I and haunt them? No, I know that's, that's <laughs> definitely one of the games that some people like, uh, are kind of like, ah, oh, but shut up and down like Mysterium. I don't, know. I don't know. I have no idea. Mysterium's the greatest game ever made. I think Ooh, it's, is it's, that it's, true? It's not, but I think it's good. No, it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's definitely that. There are elements of that which make me think this is genius where there's, there's nothing in the design of uh, of When I Dream that makes me think this is genius. Yeah, I feel like When I Dream is like a mechanic rather than yes. a fully fledged game. Yeah, me. and there's simple That's things in it that kind of annoy me. Like when you're having to remember words, you only get points if they're the ones that you got right in the first place. When I think there was kind of, I had fun times a few times where I was like, I re- realized halfway through what the word I was trying to get earlier was and then try to recollect that in the dream. But it's like, no, you can't have that point because you didn't get it right. It's like, but I was... It's because yeah. you're so there's, don't, there's don't elements dislike I just think, it because you're bad at dreaming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what? The most fun thing is at the end where you have to recollect it and you just have the chance to basically invent a dumb dream. Yeah, you like, have that to was good. recollect each thing, turn them into some kind of long single phrase that will never make sense. I forget the name of it, but there is a Japanese board game which involves um, placing one of those uh, terrible VR headsets. Where you, you know when you slot your phone into like some yeah. cardboard and yes. it's like a terrible set of VR goggles you have in front of your eyes? Um, it was one of those, except, uh, and I'm going to butcher this, but essentially players take turns to look through the VR uh, headset and then they can see the, through a maze and have to memorize parts of the maze and then you use that to navigate a board, which otherwise you can't see. But I think there's something to this idea that a blindfolded or uh, otherwise like VR enabled person who has to kind of process information and feed that back into something happening on the table. Yeah. Is this making any sense or am I just Yeah, talking? no, no it mean, is. It's kind of fever dream again, <laughs> but uh we should move on. Yeah. Paul, Paul yeah. is there something else you played at Shucks? Well, you... it's funny that you mentioned Japanese games. Yes, I'd like to briefly talk about uh Hanami Koji as well, which game designer Jonathan Ying brought along. It is a two-player card game, and it's about trying to win the favor of geisha by offering them gifts. You have uh, seven geisha who are in front of you on the table, and each one has a different 
sort of total value, which is the total amount of gifts that are available to try and win their favor. Gifts. Animated gifts. Gifts. Ah, this is where my pronunciation goes. I wish it was That makes gifts. more sense. I wish it was. It does make a lot more but sense. But it's just as good. Believe me, it's just as good as gifts. There's a very, there's a limited number of cards in the deck which correspond to the total number of gifts. Gifts. Oh my God. That you can give to all <laughs> oh, of Oh, Matt, these. you've ruined it. You totally I've broken Paul. <laughs> oh, oh no. Oh, this is actually really bad. I'm going to do this for the rest of the day. But uh, between the two of you, it means you, you have uh, an idea of like how many cards there are always going to be in the game. And if you don't have a card, it's almost certain that your opponent does have the card except for one single card that ends up burned at the side. And all of your turns are predetermined. The things that you can do are, for example, lay a card down in front of a geisha to, um, uh, you know, to gift her something to make her more likely to come over to be interested in your side and work at, I think, work at your tea house is the idea. Um, and then once you've done that, you can only do that move once. And then you'll have another move that could be divide cards into two stacks of two. And then your opponent gets to pick one of those stacks and you get to pick the other and then lay those out. And it's all about doing very strict, specific things, but in any order that you like. And whichever thing that you do gives both you and your opponent more information about which cards each of you has, which obviously allows you to work out which of these uh, ladies you can or can't win the favor of. And so you end up with a game where the information gets more and more complete as it goes along. And you're constantly adjusting the balance because you see like there are only two cards to win the favor of this lady. My opponent's already played one. So if I play the other, it'll end up being a draw. So I may as well sacrifice that to them. So hopefully I can win the favor of this other person instead, but they require more cards. Maybe my opponent has some of those or maybe one of those got burned. And it's so tight and precise and clever. I was so impressed it was one of those things where i played it and then just immediately i had to play it again oh really yes really yeah no i um he's really, not lying to you quins I, it is the you truth you wouldn't do that i was really stoked it had this thing that love letter has which is where it is a very simple card game where all of the individual actions that you take are very basic but when you combine like one after another when things happen in a certain order and you learn more about the game everything becomes really important and every choice becomes really important and everything you do affects both you and your opponent const- constantly. So it's like you you couldn't take anything out of this game. You couldn't make it any more precise than it is. Um, and the bonus is it's also just very good looking. It's got very good card art. It looks really stylish and it really kind of pops. Hey, talking of really good looking and Jonathan Ying, something you guys got a chance to finally play that I've been banging on about in your ears for like a year and being like, I swear to God, I swear to God, is a Bargain Quest, right? Ooh. Uh, Jonathan Ying's uh, game, which he kickstarted early this year and is currently available on pre-order. Yeah. I played it in March and I loved it and I, pre- I backed it on Kickstarter just because I played it and I'm like, yep, I want to copy this. It was really early. There was like no art on any of the cards, but the soul of it was really there and I was like, this is going to be good. And it's good, right? Uh, yes. Um, uh, the art is gorgeous, lovely, cartoonish. Two things have been added since you played it, Matthew. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, I should state, Jonathan Ying's game of running a fantasy item shop, or rather competing fantasy item shops. So heroes come into town and you go, ah, oh, traveler, would you like a sword? And then, you know, they go off and fight the monster. And if they kill the monster, that's great. If they get eaten by the monster, well, that's okay, because there's always more heroes. Yeah, so you can just sell them duff stuff quite frequently and be like, please come into my 
well, one of one of the people you can get in is just a nobleman who just has a lot of oh, money. Oh, the nobleman is the best because yeah. he'll buy anything and he has tons of money, but he has <laughs> no stats. Yeah. He's definitely going to die, but he'll buy everything. So the and the uh, the central mechanic being it's that it's a drafting game where you pass around these hands of magic items. You take one, pass the rest on. Take one, pass the rest on. Um, but these items you're drafting have different gold values and stat values. So you want to, then you need to think, well, what am I going to put in the window of my yeah, shop? Who are you going to attract? Because if you go, I'm going to draft all of the wizard items and then I'm going to put this nice wizard hat in my window. But then if your opponent has put like a better wizard stuff in their window <laughs> and the wizard goes to their shop, maybe you get like a young boy coming to your shop who oh, has yeah. no money. You got to think if you can't sell what's in your window, can you? Yeah. No, so, you can't. Yeah. So basically it means you've got to put something quite good in the window not to sell something, but then yeah. It's nice. It's really nice. It's very, very funny. Uh, lots of wonderful touches. So two of the... Um, uh, I don't think I was as big of a fan of the game as you were, Matthew, but I did mm -hmm. enjoy it a great deal. I think like when I dream, I sort of played it and went, I really enjoy this. Don't know if I personally would buy it, mm -hmm. but my goodness, like the presentation is is second to none. Um, when you start at now, the, the shops, which are everyone's personal player board, are twofold boards. So they're about postcard size. Yeah. Slightly larger than that, actually. And on the front, you can see a shop. So like one's a sort of nomadic tent, one's like a Harry Potter style thing, one's a Victorian shop. Um, you pick the one you like the most of, and then you get to unfold it. And that's the inside of the shop. So you look at the shop from a distance, go, mm, I want that one. And then you get it because you like the look of it. And then it's your reward for liking the look of that one shop. You get to see inside, you get to see twice as much, you get to see loads of details as you boom, unfold this thing. It's one of the cutest things a board game has done for me this year. Um, and then, yeah, the art is uh, really wonderful. It's uh, him and his sister, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah I think so. His sister is um, a, a professional illustrator. Jonathan Ying's done some professional illustration as well. Um, and, yep, re like the most diverse art I think I've seen in a board game in a long time. Uh, I think I've forgotten the name of this anecdote, so forgive me, Jonathan. But Jonathan uh, was talking to a friend of his who was an African-American who looked through the game and said, I didn't even know you could have this many brown people in a game. <laughs> um, wow. uh, turns out you can. Turns out Jonathan Ying is pushing the, 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 uh, the edges of board game science to find out how many brown people you can put in a game. And it's awesome. It's really great. Uh, and yeah, the game's lovely. It's really funny, interesting, thought-provoking. Um, yeah, I just I feel like it was a seven or an eight for me in a time when I'm looking for nines and tens. Fair, fair. I mean, I okay. literally, I played an early version and l found it like thematic and fun and funny enough. And it comes in a tiny, lovely box as well, which is like that kind of box size for me is now a big thing. Like I, I was a big fan of Burgle Brothers and a, yeah. a, bit, a chunk of that, I think, is the fact that it's like unbelievably crammed into a tiny thing. It's Burgle not as, Brothers is astonishing. Not as small yeah. as, as Burgle Brothers, but it's still, it's the kind of like, it's it's a um, a medium-sized game in a, a very small it's, box. Paul, did you, about. I was going to say, I think it's a remarkable, I think economy of design in that way is actually also a sign of someone who is actually thinking really carefully about how much stuff they're going to make and how precise their design is. Well, it's something we can enjoy now games are sold on Kickstarter, right? Because previously board game boxes were big because uh, the size of the box implies value. But these days, uh, Kickstarters and pre-orders and all that online shopping is sold based on what's in the box as opposed mm. to the box itself. Yeah. Um, so people can go, look at all this stuff. And then you mm -hmm. go, I want all that stuff. And then the designer goes, okay, how small of a box can I compress this into? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of Jonathan Ying, this is becoming the Jonathan Ying episode, uh, not starring Jonathan Ying. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so he brought along a game, another game. He he teased you with um, Geisha, Paul. He delighted me with Shifty Eyed Spies, yeah. which was the most fun I had at Shucks. Tell, tell uh, us about this, this. You've got like a really good this anecdote is, about this. 
Oh, I'm I'm being unprofessional because I haven't uh, checked the availability in Europe. I believe in America it's something crazy like a Target exclusive. But wherever you live, um, if you like party games, if you like city games, if you like games that are truly, truly delightful, um, you want to Google Shifty Eyed Spies. This is a game for I think like three to six people, um, or maybe maybe four. Um, I think four is where it starts to shine. You're all spies in like 19 or like 1890s Paris, and uh, you're given a card and another card. First of which is which spy you want to meet up with. So let's say I get a card that says Paul Dean or like Paul Dean's character. <laughs> that means I have uh. to uh, I have to indicate to Paul Dean that we're going to meet somewhere. Now, if anyone sees me indicating to Paul, it's you I want to meet with, then they can use one of their tokens and be like, Quinn's is trying to meet Paul. And instantly um, uh, I lose Paul's card. They get a point. It's all terrible for me. So the way the game works is by winking. It is a winking game. It is a pro-winking test. Uh, and so I have to wink at Paul. And that's not all, because Paul has a second card, which is one of the four locations in the game, which are these little three-dimensional standees, mm-hmm. showing like the newsagent, the subway, the fountain, the really lovely-looking three-dimensional thing on the table. I wink at Paul, and then Paul has to flash his eyes down at, for example, the fountain. But that happens so quickly, and it's so hard that I might think, was Paul looking at the fountain? I mean, this couldn't possibly but- go wrong, could it? There's no way it goes wrong, especially not when you have a table of players, all of whom are watching one another going, like, literally, like, because on your turn, players are going to be watching you. So you can't possibly wink at someone <laughs> your turn. So you just pass. It's like, Quinn's, it's your turn, pass. It goes to Matthew. Matthew goes, pass. And sometimes you get pass, 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 because no one can find the time to wink. But it works because everyone needs to wink. So at some point, everyone's going to stop their like omnipresent vigilance and be like okay I'm gonna stop I'm gonna wink I'm gonna wink now and then uh, with multiple players doing that you tend to find moments when people just aren't looking at you Yeah, especially because to flash your eyes down at the table to indicate where you're going you need to kind of uh, the psychology of it's really clean because you need to remind yourself where those four locations are so if you're going, if anyone winks at me, I need to look at the news agent. Then occasionally you'll look down at the table, and be like, oh, "There's a news agent." Oh, there's a news agent. <laughs> um, it's just funny. And then the the anecdote I told at Sharks is that I played this with Pip, a lovely, lovely, lovely contributor, Philippa War, and uh, she. The uh, W is for war. The, well, w the is, war machine. She's literally uh, uh, Pip War, best name ever. We didn't even make it up. No. Um, and uh, I discovered when we started playing Shifty Eyes Supplies that Pip cannot wink. Uh, <laughs> Pip winks oh, yeah. with both eyes. Yeah, which just isn't winking. So it's, the game yeah. begins and it's like, it's got that wonderful thing that you have in like uh, deception games and, and deduction games where um, where everyone will fall silent because with adrenaline at the beginning, the thing that immediately happened when we started playing, Pip looked at me and then winked with both eyes. And I sort of didn't know how to accept this. <laughs> I waited for a second and then just thought, sod it and went to Pip and said, were you winking at me? <laughs> She's like, Yes. Um, so yeah, that that game was absolutely great. Um, I recommended Dead Last on the site. Yeah, um, a wonderful game of using just sort of body language and 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 wit, uh, figuring out who to kill around the table, kind of like Werewolf, but with um, body language. Um, yes. I think Dead Last is great. I heard from some people that they don't like deciding who around the table to kill and knock mm. out of the game. They find that an unpleasant experience. If that's the case, if you don't think Dead Last is for you. Definitely look into shifty-eyed spies because it's like dead last, but you're just trying to meet up with people and have a chat. About I so do like I governments. Think very, very, go, very go. quickly. Then, do you have any spy tips? Because it sounds really hard. If I want to play this, uh, it is really hard. Um, uh, no, 
I really okay. don't. I really don't. I really don't. It's ex- trying to catch people winking and also... I guess my spy tip is if you see someone do what you think might be a shifty wink, it is definitely a shifty wink. Okay. Because it turns out, like, you'll see someone blink and then you'll be like, are they just blinking? No. They're probably just blinking. Wait, no! They're being a shifty-eyed spy and I've caught them red-handed. Red-eye-handed. Red-eye-handed. Uh, yeah, so it's good. But really cute thing in that game is um, you don't just win when you hit five points. You have to hit five points by me- and get someone else to five points as well. Huh. So it's just, there's never one winner in shifty-eyed spies. Definitely making it the opposite of the feel-bad experience of dead last. It's like a feel-good experience because you can't even win alone. You have to get someone else to five points and then wink at them and then go to the fountain and kiss or whatever. I don't know what's happening in that game. Um, so yeah, no, no tips. Uh, no tips, Paul. I'm sorry. Very well. <laughs> Very well. I must leave now. <laughs> a little roundup of some other stuff I, I quickly played. I played, uh, played a couple of games. I don't know if we're talking about them both on this podcast, but uh, we met designer John D. Clare, who is a, a very prolific designer at the moment. Ah, uh, yes. He's been doing lots of games. Um, and I played a game called Space Base, which is one of his games, and Edge of Darkness. I played an entire game of Space Base with him without actually knowing that he was the designer of the game. In fact. He was <laughs> but- a, very, a very modest and quiet man who... He did beat us, <laughs> but, but but in a very calm and pleasant way. That happens a lot at board game conventions. You say you should be careful, people at home, when you're like when you play a game, you're like, yep. I think this is rubbish. Yeah. Because it's like when we were playing the expansion for Las Vegas, and the guy came over and said, "Oh, is this Las Vegas? This is a good game." And the designers are like, going, "Yeah, thanks, thanks, yeah, thanks, yeah." <laughs> Just trying to subtly be like. I did. I did this one. Oh, we have to talk about the anecdote from Las Vegas expansion before we get okay. On to sure, do it, do it, do it. Um, well, that we were playing the Lords of Vegas expansion. Actually, very quickly, um, it's only going to be a very small deck of cards. It's Underworld, right? It's called Underworld. It's not compatible with the existing Lords of Vegas expansion. Again, if you don't know what Lords of Vegas is, Google, shut up and sit down, Lords of Vegas, to watch our video. It's one of the games we love to pieces. In fact, two two games, Lords of Vegas and Innis, are both games I've bought based on watching the shut up and sit down reviews, which are you and Paul doing. Like a now. sucker. Aww. Absolutely. Aww. Hook, line, and sinker. I've watched these videos and go, that game sounds great. And I bought them, and they're two of my favorites. So, yeah. uh, so Lords of Vegas has an existing expansion called Up, which makes it significantly more nuanced. It means the casinos you're building in Vegas can go vertical, which it doesn't sound like much, but my goodness, in a game about linking casinos, it makes it very complicated. Mm-hmm. Underworld is another way of the designer removing money from the game, because he found that in the original Lords of Vegas, players end up with too much money at the end. Yeah, he just wants to make sure you keep having options all the way through the game. Right. Um, Whereas without that, it, the board fills up and then you just have loads of money. Down so people can look forward soon to Lords of Vegas Underworld, which is a new deck of cards, which is a little shop of people. And when your turn begins, you can buy, you know, something like a luxury purple because you can improve your purple casinos or you can get a debt or you can just you know have a fourth of july party or i like that some of the the additions to that is the fact that it does that thing of in the same way that a lot of the core of the game is looking at what's out there and going i bet western casinos are going to be huge soon because none of them have come up it means you get cards that allow you to double down on that or to split off because usually in the game you do just focus on one or two types of casino but then later on you can be like I'm going to get this card because then I'll get money every time sci-fi comes up. Yeah. It's definitely going to happen. If and, Lords yeah. of Vegas Up doubles down on how clever the game is, <clears throat> I think Underworld doubles down on how silly the game can be because it's really ways to spend your money that doesn't make a huge difference. It's like, do you want to get a lot of money now and lose it later? Do you want to lose money now and get more later? It's yeah. not like rich tactical thinking, but it's just solid stuff. Anyway, the anecdote that I wanted to tell is, uh, and you need to be ready with the uh, with the mark button there, Matthew. <laughs> okay. Um, because uh, I said oh, these cards had quite ugly illustrations on them <laughs> but when you're playing with a designer you have to be really careful but i still wanted to tell people at home what i thought of this expansion so i said to the designer um uh, i i are these illustrations um final uh and then he looks at me and he says you're 
idiot. Um, but in a friendly way, and he says, first off, if you were trying to say that in a way that didn't hurt my feelings, you f***ed up because you hurt my feelings. <laughs> Second off, it's clip art. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was amazing. He was like, did you think you were trying to say that in a way that like wouldn't offend me? And you're like, yeah, I was trying to. Like, That did not work. <laughs> it was... Uh, yeah. yeah, brilliantly blunt. Also, that entire game we played through the expansion with two brothers, so I keep forgetting the names of them. Uh, Cole, oh, yeah. And, uh, Cole and the gentleman who's just became a dad during yes. shucks. Yes, um, like one of them had to go home because there was a baby happening live. Uh, um, but they were they were lovely, and watching those brothers go like at, for each other's throats reminded me of playing Lords of Vegas with my brother, which is the tendency to how those games pan out either. Yeah, just like I'm just gonna crush you with money because <laughs> you're my brother. <laughs> yeah, lovely stuff. Uh, so we should skip back to um, Edge of Darkness. And mm-hmm. uh, so, sorry, that designer's name again was John D. Clare. John D. Clare. John D. Oh, so I, first of all, I was going to just briefly say Space Base, which I enjoyed. Right? It was basically it was a lot like Machikoro. It lacked the charm of Machikoro, if I'm entirely honest, in terms of the art and the, the sense of building a town. And for me, that's what I like a lot about Machikoro. How it? would you describe Machikoro if people... Machikoro is a game where you basically, you buy cards and then you build a little, a little nice town. It's like a little Japanese cartoon town. And then you roll dice and you get more money and you buy more stuff. And it, it, You're kind of building your own slot machine, right? Yes. You put things down going, if I roll a four, I'm going to get money. Yeah. And basically you kind of, you try to get a spread. So you're like, if I roll twos or threes, this will happen for all six this will happen or yeah. you can double down and be like every time i roll a six it's mega payday one of the few games magikoro that shut up and sit down has gone this is quite good and our entire audience has gone no it's not yeah i mean there's, <laughs> that's the thing is there's not a lot to it but i find it a really nice gentle afternoon thing it's very good with a hangover it's very it's very slow it's very i mean there are a simple. lot of ga- card games you play with a 52 card deck where there's functionally no game you're just yeah. you're just putting cards down because really it's an excuse to sit down with people. Exactly. Magic Horror is the same thing. I think so. It just takes up a tremendous amount of table space. But Space Space uh, uses smaller cards, uses a very neat little uh, slotting system, uh, and it has a lot more going on. I mean, to begin with, basically in Magic Horror, you roll two dice and then you get the result of that. Uh, what, hap- what is what happens. In this, you've got a thing where you can either use the combined total of the dice being rolled or the individual dice to trigger stuff on your board. Uh, okay. Uh, and also you have two layers of it. Like you have one to 12 as the potential kind of roll in front of you and they're little ships that do things. But then every time you buy a new spaceship uh, to go into a slot, the card that's already in that slot gets flipped over and goes underneath your board, slides up and you get um, a bit like an Imperial Settlers. You get this on the top of the card just popping up mm. with a little new value. And it's got uh, this blue on the main board, which is things that activate when you roll the dice, and then the ones that go underneath become red, and the things that activate when other people roll so the dice. So it really is Magikaro. Or it, inspired by Magikaro. We have nothing it's against... It's clearly massively inspired by Magikaro. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. Designers taking the foundations of good games is what made this hobby great. Yeah, and it, it's inspired by Magikaro, but it adds uh, more depth, more strategy. Uh, you had some really interesting cards in terms of uh, like going for quite odd strategic builds, like... One person got this weird warp ship that allowed them to swap the position of that card and another card. So wait, what's happening? Are you running a space parking lot? I mean, that's the only <laughs> thing. Is it? It's thematically, I'm just like, it's called space base. So you're just, yeah, I guess you just, it's like a parking thing. I don't know. That's the one thing where Machikoro for me shines with a theme and sense of like, I'm building a little town. Whereas this is like, thematically, I don't really know what I'm doing. But it was a mechanically much more interesting game. Yeah, basically, yeah, it, it, it immediately sounds the same. That. It served the same purpose of being just a a simple thing with some tactical elements to get into. But really, it reminded me a lot more of like playing craps cross with bingo. 
of it being like, people are rolling dice all the time and every time you see a number, you look down your board and see what you can do. So the same designer, uh, the, a game that people might know from this designer is Mystic Veil, mm -hmm. um, which is a game that I reviewed on the site a while back um, using AEG's card crafting system. Um, Mystic Veil being a game of druids and it's a sort of deck building game like Dominion, but it uses this you know, I, I jokingly call it like revolutionary new technology. Uh, but Perspex. What, yeah, what, right. What AEG have done, it's um, the card crafting system is where they, in the box, are a bunch of card sleeves and then a bunch of Perspex cards with stuff printed on them. I don't even know if it's Perspex, but Perspex Acrylic, is Acrylic, plastic, yeah, I don't something know. Something like that. Um, sort of like acetate, plastic. Acetate, that's what you want. Um, so uh, one of these acetate cards might have like a card on the top third, another might have it in the middle third. And so by putting multiples of these acetate slips into the sleeve, you can make your own cards, which have like a different top third, middle third, bottom third. Um, so the games all use this system. Mystic Veil is the one we played where we went, Meh, You awesome. felt that there wasn't enough in the box. Yes, and I have since heard a rumor that um, the original design of Mystic Veil had like the expansions and the base game. Yeah. And then AEG went, this is either you know too expensive or it's yeah. too much in the box. And so they split it up into multiple boxes. As a result, every time I play Mystic Veil, I'm like, I don't love, love this game. And also I've spent too much money on it because it's junked into different boxes. So, but then his next game with the card crafting system is Edge of Darkness. Yeah, which and, he said he, he'd been working on before Mystic Veil. Yeah. So yes. he's basically like, this was his original idea, then did Mystic Veil and presumably built up enough clout through that. <laughs> kind to... of like how Uwe Rosenberg accidentally birthed, like, what was it, Paul? Like four games while he was designing Feast for Odin? Yeah, he, uh, and, oh, I mean, in respect of this, there's even more expansions and stuff coming, but yes, oh my goodness. Um, so, uh, Edge of Darkness, uh, and Matthew, I've got a bone to pick with you. Oh no. I went to the Edge of Darkness. <laughs> I didn't. I fought... <laughs> I killed so many monsters on the edge of darkness yep. in our game, yep. and you sat back. I don't even know what you did, aside from get rich and then ultimately beat me. I trained a lot of students. Uh, I milled a lot of fields. Yeah, it's um, an another one of those sort of like thematically slightly fuzzy games. Oh, I, think that, I think thematically it worked for me. Yeah, so no, so as Mystic Veil did. did. I think it did. I actually really liked Edge of Darkness. Um, I thought it was really interesting. And I thought it had a lot of uh, interesting interlocking systems and ideas. Do you want to, how do you, how confident do you feel about explaining this one? Because it's probably the trickiest game to explain we've got on the podcast. I think I can do it. Let's go. Okay. So basically <laughs> the idea is that you're all uh, in, in the city and you're all vying for control of the city in different factions. Sounds familiar so far. There's monsters on the outskirts of town coming in and basically that's- Where do the monsters live? Uh, the Edge of Darkness, oh. I think. I think that's what it's called. But there is a ton going on. So first of all, you have this triple-layered uh, acetate card system. You have your cards, which have your little, your little colored insignia your on the top guild, of them. I believe. So your guild. Uh, but you don't have many. You have like three, I think. And then the way the game works, basically, is every turn you draft cards, but all of the cards, like your cards and the other players' cards, are all and in, a ton of neutral cards and a ton of neutral well. cards are all in one shared deck. Which means that when it's your go, you draft cards, and you might draft your cards, but you might actually just take other people's cards instead. And then what happens is every round you upgrade a card, and ideally you want to upgrade yours because the way it works is if you draft someone else's card, then you you use that card, but for every ability you use, you have to pay them one gold. Yeah, which basically means you have this weird system, and I like this of basically you're trying to craft cards that are useful for you because the crucial thing is after somebody, another player has used your card, they pay you, then they give you your card and it goes in a little special pile, which means you definitely draw it up next round, which means you, next round you definitely, without, you're going to get to use it. But it's still part of your hand. And I really like that in the fact that, A, it means that 
a lot of the time you you already can start thinking about your next turn in advance because you know like one or two of the cards you're going to have in your hand straight away because they're Mm. already in front of you. B, you have this weird system whereby you want to build cards that are going to be useful for your game strategy. And there are a bunch of different strategies to go for. But also you want to build something that is going to be enticing to other people because it's basically like if you pick up your own card when drafting, that's not efficient because... It means you're not getting any money from someone else using it. And also, like, you would have got it back next turn anyway, so it's best to go for other ones. Yep, you also have to watch what other players build, because, example, like, the farmers are the ones that increase your hand size. Yep. So you, goodness me, you are... um, If other players then slip farmers into their cards... You no longer want to put farmers into the cards because if there's too many farmers in the deck, then... you're not going to pick your cards. Yeah, and you know, I... and also it was modular in the fact that we played a game with with a basic setup of being like these are the ten locations and ten like inserts for the cards. But there's, I think they were aiming to have fifteen, twenty in the total game, and it would be that you'd play with randomized things each game. Yep, and of course, there's a lot of wonderful custom art that's like this slightly uh, dark and thorny looking fantasy world. Yeah, not grim dark, but. Yeah, I like the art actually. It's it was like nice. A, it's like uh, Lord of the Rings on a cloudy day. Yeah. Um. And the probably the 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 wow moment yeah. for me was um these monsters that show up on the edge of town that uh, oh goodness, there's a lot going on. So yeah, the there way, is a lot going the on. The way the monsters spawn is you take one of the cards from this deck of good things that you've all built uh, from the bottom of the deck, I believe, or the top bottom, and then you flip it because all of Paul, are you ready for this? Yeah, all of I'm, these I'm little. So ready. I'm actually massively invested in this at this point, and I really, oh, you really? Try this. <laughs> you're invested in the edge of darkness. So these um, acetate slips that you're putting into cards. So maybe I'll have a farmer for the bottom third, and then a, a teacher for the middle third, and a park, just a nice park that gives victory points for the top third. Um, you flip that upside down when it's chosen as the monster card, and the reverse of all these acetate upgrades you're putting in, each of those shows a monster. So your park student farmer card becomes a knight wizard goblin card so as the players all build up their cards the monsters you face become stronger purely because they're the cards you're building yeah and then um the cards the monsters actually monsters on the outskirts of town doesn't do anything unless they attack you oh god yeah right Uh, so you're pulling cubes out of a bag which show all the different players colors you drop them into a dice tower which people aren't aware it's a thing where you put cubes in a tower Mm -hmm. and then they fall out randomly out of certain sides so three cards monsters are pasted at the base of the tower. You pour a bunch of colored player cubes in the tower and then the tower spits those cubes out onto cards. And when there's seven cubes on a card, whoever the has attacked that person, the monsters attack the person who has the most color on that cube, on that card. Goodness. Yeah. So it's weird. You've got like acetate card that are reversible and you've got this giant box of like this giant little tower that the cubes go in. And it, I found the way, like I personally thought that maybe it was a game that had been refined off the back of Mystic Vale of being quite clever about inserting as much kind of content and mechanics into each component as possible. Yeah. Like the yes. fact that like the fact that your cards that you're building are also the monster cards adds a curve throughout the game as well. It means like as your cards all get better, the monsters all get tougher. And also the fact that um at each round you put in you pull out from the bag a certain number of cubes based on how many um cubes you have on your hand of cards which means that as the game escalates the monsters attack more and more so it kind of embedded within naturally just has a kind of like a momentum that, that yeah. flows without having to introduce any other rules or trackers or yeah. yeah so it did have a lot going on and a lot to think about it had a lot of clever ways such that the game progressed without having to arbitrarily tell you and in round two draw another monster card yeah. it's like 
no, you always do X, you always do Y, and that just made the game harder as we went on. But my problem with it mm-hmm. um, was that, yes, it's like, so comparing it to say like Dominion or like the the classics of this deck building, card building genre, um, I just wasn't making many decisions. So I was doing a lot of thinking. If I If I'm thinking about like which of these 10 upgrades do I want for my card, it's like, well, do I want this upgrade? Because now I have to consider how many employees do I have there? Because there's a, there's a system we haven't even described of like, yeah. everyone has <laughs> workers and there's a built-in worker placement game. Yeah, with, with worker training as well. We should say as well that <laughs> this is such a big, complicated, heavy box that AEG are bringing it to Kickstarter, I believe. Oh, right, okay. I think. So yeah, it's going to be the, the one of the first uh, AEG Kickstarter games because it's just too big. It was a heavy, slow game. And yeah, I think play-by-play, round to round, there weren't a lot of decisions popping up but it was more like a long-term strategy it was yeah more like- i feel and well, that was kind of the bummer for me because my strategy didn't really manifest and then i was kind of like making one decision every few minutes which felt uh very very slow to me i didn't feel like i could really turn the ship around it mm. felt like rather than dominion where i'm in a speedboat and every turn i can go buy this throw this away buy this um with edge of darkness i would wait four minutes and go i will take this one card and I had to do a whole load more thinking. And then, you know, it was like trying to turn an oil tanker around. Yeah, no, I, I do get a sense of that pace as well. I realized that it was a, the, the strangest of the economies and realizing early on, it's like you actually had to like really think quite carefully in order to make things happen. It was like, you know, you would you would scrape together just enough coins to do this, which would just do this and just do this. I actually really enjoyed it. But I, again, I do, yeah, it was it was more of an oil tanker game, which I think particularly as well is is the sort of thing where like, if you're playing, I I generally don't get on with those. I was lucky in this position that I got the sense of it and I, I roll with it. But sometimes it's like you get halfway through a game and you just go, "Oh, I've just I've done this wrong." Well, here's the thing: like what made Mystic Veil great was um the sort of the blackjack system. In Mystic Veil, it's a deck building game where you draw cards, but if you draw too many sort of like hazardy symbols, then you go bust and you lose your turn. What made Mystic Veil great wasn't really the card crafting system. Like Mystic Veil, you could have redesigned it so it just mm-hmm. used normal cards. Similarly with Edge of Darkness, everything going on in this game with the card upgrades and stuff, I think you could probably, I mean, obviously you'd have to massively redesign everything, but I mm-hmm. still didn't feel like we were really using the central thing of building up cards and putting cards in these sleeves. Yeah. Uh, um, I felt like it was a lot going on and the card sleeves was just one small part of that, whereas I feel like I might have been happier if it was a centerpiece. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we've talked about this game for too long now, especially considering it's not even out yet and won't be out for four or five months. But certainly it was probably the most interesting thing we've it, had. It is, it is fascinating it. to me, if nothing else, the amount of different things that are in it. And I can see how to play. There might be too much that you get stuck in the mud, but all of these ideas, like from a design point of view, are really interesting to me. Yeah, and uh, certainly it was exciting to sit down. It was exciting to play. It was exciting to talk about it afterwards. Uh, should we? We should finish by talking about the most serious, important, complicated, and heavy game. Oh my at god! Shucks. Paul, I believe you have now experienced Meeple Circus. Meeple Circus is probably, um, you know, if I was going to say to somebody, there's a really heavy game, really serious design out there. You know, probably the the, the game that you're gonna that's going to burn your brain the most. Uh, it's it's Meeple Circus, not not least because it has an elephant in, which is the heaviest animal, as all science will tell you. <laughs> um, I don't think it's a game that burns your your brain. I think it's a game that burns your soul. Yeah, that is uh, actually exactly where I was going to go next. Um, 
Uh, because... There is a video of um, us playing Meeple Circus now oh. on shutupandsitdown.com. We play it with the lovely folks of uh, and it, Nobody and Included. It's, it's, and uh, and it's an extremely good video. I would urge everybody listening to go and watch that Let's Play of Meeple Circus because the people in it are wonderful and then the things that happen are to do a wonderful I mean... expression of how ridiculous this game can get. It is a dexterity game. A little like uh, Junk Art, which I reviewed last year, which is, you know, fundamentally a game about wood, putting wooden pieces on top of other wooden pieces, but in very specific ways. It's not just like Jenga where the challenge is to try and make something and have it not fall over. It's, you know, you've got these different pieces that are different shapes. They're elephants and they're seals or they have like a, is it a big beach ball or something? And then you have meeples that are acrobats. <laughs> And but you've got you also you've very... got drafting in terms of like you you know you you'll be like oh you'll you'll have a, a set of objectives shared objectives yeah. in front of you that you can get like different points for these different yeah. display configurations. But so then it had that kind of element of like we found quite freaking what would happen is you'd be like no but I've done that look I've got two men and a ball and someone would go yeah but actually you've done it the wrong way up or something or like you you'd done it wrong and you're like oh no so you, you're it would all so be for vain. focused on just trying to put the things get the things to balance anyway to get two flipping thing to get and... bloody. Right. It's just literally to... the most frustrating game I've ever played. Like, I, wait, wonderful. really? Yeah. I mean, I, I found it very funny, but I found it, when I played it, I found it so, not frustrating, actually, that's not true, stressful. I found it so <sighs> stressful. That's because the camera's wrong. And maybe, but I don't know. I think, I mean, I did, it is the only game, oh, in, in my life where I've gotten so annoyed I've thrown a board game component. <laughs> <laughs> and that's in the video if people want that's to that's true uh, I was surprised by that I was, it was it I was, was surprised that guy was real bad because I yeah. play tons of games with you and you never get like mm. that ever yeah. I mean it's one thing to because have we even described the basic concept that against the clock everyone has to build a circus display out of tiny wooden pieces yeah no, which means right, there's yes, lots of yes. fine dexterity balancing and you go around in multiple rounds and then the last round, everyone has to do one at a time. Yeah, when, that's when it gets really stressful. Uh, Paul, uh, what was your? Uh, you had to drum with your fingers. Is that? I right? had to drum with my fingers, which uh, was not too difficult. But at the same time, I forgot to do it because at, at each round, also you you know you're grabbing more of these circus performers. You're buying like an acrobat who does a certain thing or a new animal. And none of these things fit together properly. So by the end round, you're also trying to put like a wooden plank on an elephant that has two people stood on it. And for some reason, it just becomes impossible to just say a phrase or do a thing with your finger because you're so focused on just trying to stack things. It's it's pretty great. It's Lots terrific. of funny, clever ideas. Um, but let's ask the difficult questions here before we wrap <laughs> this podcast up uh, in yesterday's newspaper and give it to some punters on the internet. I'm, ra- I'm raising both of my eyebrows. Uh, it's... It's a good dexterity game. We can all agree on that. But we've recommended some real good dexterity games recently. We've recommended Junk Heart, yeah. Flick 'em Up, Go Cuckoo, mm-hmm. and something else that I have forgotten. Oh, uh, Rhino Hero Super Battle. Who can forget Rhino Hero Super Battle? Oh, yes, um, yes. And Flip Ships as well. Flip Ships, of course. All these reviews are on the site. Um, so do we recommend it above them? <gasps> Uh, this is really hard because are we saying that you can only have one dexterity game or we should only talk about the best dexterity game? I feel it's in the no, I top think a, No, I think, with, I think within the arena, within the arena, there's there's a lot of room for variation. Like, you know, I think like Go Cuckoo versus Flick'em Up, come on, it's entirely different things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but no, does this, I'm, I'm not sure actually. I I, I think with, with Meeple Circus, I liked it. It's, it's funny. 
It's very stressful. There is a part of me that just looks at it and goes, the whole drafting system and point system feels like a little bit like, how do you, like, I don't know, especially with the, the final round where you think, all right, yeah, you get seven points for doing this. It's really hard, but then someone gets five points for doing something that's yeah. really easy. Honestly, I, I think what's the point in having such a dedicated scoring system in a game that's like, I on. don't think there's enough in the box. I think like if I'm playing a heavy game, which involves all this granular point scoring and like tons of cards and different rounds. And actually it's not even the easiest game to explain as opposed no. to like Gokoku um, or flip chips or whatever. Um, I, I feel that it's not quite well balanced enough, which is ironic for a dexterity game. Ha ha ha. But also, there's just not enough variation in the box. You know, you you literally seen everything it does within 15 minutes. But 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 the cards, but, but it's thematically, I feel the best dexterity game I've played in a while. It is a game that that is its theme. It's a game about people trying to balance stuff as their jobs. I've got a question though. I've got a follow up question about this. Ooh. Um, do you think when you're talking about how well it manages the theme do you think that the fact that it's a game which which has music that you play as part of it is an, almost uh, an element of almost a cheat in the same way when in the world of video games people will say yeah this video game is not great but it's great if you play it multiplayer or two-player which is like yeah well, obviously everything is more fun if you do it with another human do you think that sometimes an element of why the theme seems really strong is because as part of the game design you're playing circus music all the time in the background which, I... and any board game you play if you play music in the background that's thematically correct Ooh. is so much better but 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 i when i played it we forgot to do that and we still had a good time so that's my what? that's my what do you mean you forgot you to do it Timer. How did you keep time? We just used a timer, and I was so stressed just trying to put a person on top of another person oh, that, that I didn't need any music to to make my hair stand on end. <sighs> Paul with Egbert <laughs> Dean. I think the pieces are a bit big. I mean, sorry, a bit small for my opposite of big. Uh, a bit small for my. I don't know. I got massive hands. I can't do anything about it's, it. It was very stressful. I found it more stressful than funny, which is interesting. Um, I wasn't. I was. I really, really. I was so surprised at how stressful the stress it made me. You know. Also, it's like. I feel like I like flicking games or like flip ships, flipping games, um, because s- s- you'll miss, you'll fail and it's funny or you'll do something improbable and everyone will go, oh, whereas with Meeple Circus, like you can, some rounds you can do something really impressive. You can do that perfect balancing and everyone will go, wow. Some rounds you can drop your tower yeah. and that's fine. But a lot of Meeple Circus is like, you stacked everything up. Did you get the points? You got the points. Yeah, yeah, you're right, actually. It's the fact that when you play Flick'em Up and somebody does an incredible shot, you're like, that was amazing. Yeah. With Dexterity Games, usually you celebrate the big successes when the... It's not really a problem, but the, the what you celebrate the most in Meeple Circus is failure. Yeah, I think about... <laughs> Which is, yeah. Um, But you don't even celebrate it. Because you, you can't. I mean, like, you see that in the video as well. Like, we're, we're, we're laughing a lot when people really, really mess up. But then you're kind of torn between that kind of like... Wanting to laugh at them, but also having to openly commiserate them because you can tell that they're quite deeply yeah. sad inside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I think true. is, as an experience goes, it's it's. It, I think it's one of those things. It's a bit like actually with when I when I dream actually of being like it's a kind of fun one off or two off experience. But I agree. It's, it's not something I'd really want to be an experience that I would bring out to the table very often. Yeah, and you're you, you're right that no, there is no limit on the amount of dexterity games someone can own. It's not like you have to own two dexterity games and they are catacombs and flick them up. Um, really, I guess the more valuable question is, would I buy it? And the answer is probably not. 
I think it's really good fun mm, if you play okay. it with a bunch of people who are who are play a lot of board games and who also have the right sort of mentality. But I can imagine you bringing that to a table of people who really care about winning and losing and it being actually quite an unpleasant experience. Well, so here's the question. You, yeah. ha- I feel like um, with the games of this podcast, you've been quite positive and been sort of like, oh yeah, no, no, Matt and Quinn's, I'd buy Flicker. Here's the thing. You don't, ha- you don't have to buy Meeple Circus because no. you're you. Yes. You get games for free now. Honestly, because Matt and occasionally myself do buy games, don't say, oh, I'd, I'd buy it. It's like, would you actually spend what? Like 40 Canadian dollars? 45? Would you do that? I'm, what's the guy in English TV who asks difficult questions? Uh, Paxman, Jeremy Paxman. I'm Jeremy Paxman, Paul. <laughs> Answer the question. Would you spend uh, for $45? Circus, uh, would you spend yeah. $45? Yeah, I, I feel like really? I would for Meeple Circus. I don't know if I would for... This isn't hypothetical. I mean, like, I want you to PayPal me the money right now. <laughs> okay, all right. I would. It is It is one that I would buy because increasingly I'm playing more and more dexterity games and I'm using them to lure people When was the last the time hobby. you bought a game? When was the last time you bought a game? Um... It would have been it would have been a feast for Odin, which would have been uh, something that we. Oh, had but didn't to buy you buy that because we had to review it? Yeah, that doesn't count. When was the last time you voluntarily went out, left the house, walked down the street, took out your wallet, <laughs> took the money out, gave it to a man or a woman, not sexist, uh, and <laughs> and gave you and they gave you a game in response for cash because you wanted to? I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, See, this I, is why I can't trust you when you're like, I'd buy this. I've bought quite a few games recently. Yeah, you have. Yeah, Ooh, I yeah. buy a lot of stuff because I, I tend to watch your reviews and then buy them. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to go crazy for card games. While I was in uh, on my honeymoon, I bought two decks of cards, one of which has Chocobos on, the other of which has Kirby. I know so much about Kirby lore now as a result of playing. <laughs> he with put thing. people in mouth and then do their thing. Not in the first Kirby game. What? I don't. I, I, I'm so confused right now. Should we wrap this up then? Let's, We've discussed mm. Shucks. Uh, we're all... Next. Final a final thing which I noticed from Shucks, which was lovely. Uh, Quinns a couple of times has told the story of uh, getting onto a bus and a man saying Quinns, yes. the man driving the bus saying Quinns and knowing Quinns and, and Quinns looking terrified, uh, which is a reasonable response. Uh, we met um, at the convention uh, some very close friends of the bus driver, as a man called Tyler. So shout out, not Tyler, Tyson. Apologies. So yeah, a shout out to Tyson, uh, the bus driver, for scaring <laughs> Quinns. <laughs> Uh, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone else scares Quinns, but if you're a bus driver, go for it. Fair game. <laughs> yeah. You're a bus driver. I talk too much to bus drivers these days. like In, in the, the hope that they will say, admit ha- they recognise you? Something happened to me in the wake of Brexit, where after Brexit, I started saying thank you to bus drivers at every opportunity. Oh, I've been doing that for years. So. Yeah, well, all right. I'm late to the bus driving thanking party. Right. Sometimes the bus is really full and I get really embarrassed. Oh, because you can't move and you've thanked them. No, like sometimes when I get off the bus, I go, thank you, really loud, because you have to get off the doors at the back of the bus. Yeah, yeah no, I tend not to shout it. I just, I tend to thank people when they pick me up. Sometimes as the bus is driving away, I just yell after it. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate you. Yeah, that's not strange. And your driver, Paul. Do you thank bus drivers? So it's a lot more common here in Vancouver, actually. So I do. Oh, it and is. Also, yeah, that's true. And I really like it when you get on the bus. Often there's a moment of acknowledgement where, like, they nod at you, or you nod at them, or you smile, or something. Um, and I, it's like living in a village, except the village is like a million people. Mm, that's one of the reasons we wanted to host uh, Shucks in Vancouver. Nice people. Uh, we should state because not everyone uh, donates and receives our donor newsletter. Um, not everyone reads the site. Uh, Shucks was enough of a success that uh, Touchwood 
Uh, we are going to be hosting Shucks 2018 in Vancouver. So if you want to start putting pennies in a bag, then maybe you can come to Vancouver in October. And if the ticket price just nudges the convention out of your price range, we are already accepting uh, uh, applications for volunteers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mm-hmm. can email yeah. us at shucks, S-H-U-X, at shutupandsitdown.com. And Vancouver is a beautiful, beautiful place. It's uh, yeah, pretty good. It's, I had a great time on bicycles in the aquarium. I love it. It's beautiful. Right. It's a beautiful, beautiful bouncing baby boy. Convention right on the waterfront as well, so you can watch water. Yeah, and join us uh, for the next episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, where we were talking about some more games. One game I talked about, I saw a Sharks I didn't talk about, which is actually pretty good. Stuff fables, <gasps> and oh, also yeah. lately I have been, uh, I have been dabbling with Gloomhaven for Ooh, the purposes of yes, a you have. future review. And so I can't talk about that a huge amount, but I can talk about my thoughts a little bit. Hot dog. Uh, what can I tease for next episode? What can you tease? What can you tease? I will have probably quite a lot of thoughts on Pandemic Legacy Season 2 <gasps> because, I mean, I could have squeaked them into this podcast, but I should save more for the video, which is going up in a week. And I am, oh, Paul, you'll never guess. I've been playing a game called Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. Well, well, Matt um, and I, yeah, okay. I think we could all have a round table about that because we had a chance to sort of road test that. And obviously we've both played TI3 several times back in the day. It's better than Twilight Imperium 3, isn't it? I'm uh, I'm excited putting together the review I've got of Twilight Imperium 4th Edition now. Having God, it would have been sad it. If, it, if it wasn't. If it wasn't yeah. good, no, yeah. Like, after all that, they're like, yeah, it's not as good as 3. You know what's funny, and though? It could have happened. Between 3 and 4, 3rd Edition and 4th Edition of Twilight Imperium, I played so many war games, so many like moving dudes in a map game, um, including uh, Fantasy Flight's own um, Star Wars Rebellion, which I'm playing now because I'm testing the expansion. Mm. Um, that review will go up in a few days. Um and my god it's just good you care about so much in Twilight Imperium moving a unit border squabbles having discussions diplomacy wars you know bombing planets like there's so much going on and it's just really good it's still really good and they've just cleaned it up for 4th edition in exactly the ways it needed this was just meant to be a roundup of stuff coming next week look forward to next week thank you very much listening to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast everybody see you again bye goodbye goodbye (laughs) goodbye